him. Sometimes we let him pick out the book. Well, recently, he picked out a book, and uh, we've read this a dozen, 15 times maybe, but it was particularly meaningful to both Leah and I as we read The Selfish Giant to him. So uh, I'd like to share a little bit this morning, if I could. Once there was a giant who lived in a large castle near the center of town. It was a very fine castle, yet the giant was seldom at home to enjoy it. Instead, he spent many years traveling restlessly from place to place. While the giant was away, the children of the town came to play in his garden each day after school. It was the most beautiful garden in the land, and some said that it was enchanted. Inside the garden, it was summer all year long. When the trees never lost their leaves, the flowers were always in bloom, and the weather never got cold. Sometimes it rained, but only at night when the children were asleep in their beds. It was always sunny again in the morning. The children skipped rope, they swung from the trees, they played games in this enchanted garden. When they grew hungry, they plucked fruit from the trees and ate it. The children were very happy in the garden. One day the giant returned home. He had grown weary during his travel, and he longed for the peace and quiet of his castle. Instead, loud noises greeted him when he arrived. He heard happy shouts and sounds of laughter. And when he looked out the window, he saw children playing games and eating fruit in his garden. What are you children doing here? He bellowed. This is my garden. I will not allow anyone to play here but me. The children were very frightened, and they ran away as fast as their legs would carry them. With that, the giant placed a heavy lock on the gate to the garden. He also hung a wooden sign on the garden wall announcing that no one was allowed to enter. This satisfied the giants. Finally, he growled to himself, I will now have my peace and quiet. He's a very selfish giant. Now the children, they no longer had a place to play. They would walk sadly past the garden on their way home from school and remember the fun they once had there. One day, they stopped by the gate, and the curious boy wanted to see the garden, so he climbed up on top of his friend's shoulders and peeked over the wall, and the boy gasped at what he saw. The leaves of the tree were turning orange and falling to the ground. The grass that was once so green and vibrant was now thin and brown. Flowers had wilted and the tree branches drooped. What's happened to this wonderful garden? It looks like it's dying, said the boy. The children were sad. A few even began to cry. Their beautiful garden was no longer enchanted. The garden had become a very cold and lonely place to be. The only thing you could hear was the mournful cry of the wind as it whistled through the barren trees. One day, a lovely red flower poked its head out of the ground, and the giant noticed it from his window, and he hoped that it would grow tall and strong. Instead, a gust of wind roared through the garden and scared the little flower back underground. The giant sighed. He didn't understand what was happening to his garden. He didn't understand. It had once been so beautiful, but now it was dull and cold. Well, sighed the giant, at least now I have my peace and quiet. And I don't have to share my garden with anyone. And these thoughts made the giant feel better. He was a selfish giant. The passing months brought even more change to the garden. Stinging white snow swirled in the wind and sharp icicles hung from the tree. Nobody would have played in the frozen garden even if the giant had invited them 
inside. Church, if we're not careful, we could do the same thing. We could be selfish like that giant. And we could get to the point where we'd say, what is all of this noise and ruckus going on in my garden? These people, they don't even know how to act when they come to church. And we could hang a sign on the door that said, you're not welcome here. If you want a garden, get your own garden. And we could get to the point where even if we wanted people to come to the garden, they wouldn't want to come in. Church, we have to be careful that we don't treat the garden like the giant did. Because then we could resent the fact that church is full and noisy and busy. If we're not careful, we can let our preferences and comfort take priority over the joy and hope that God has put us here to share. There are a lot of churches that think like the giant and breathe like the giants, but our commitment here is that this garden will be filled with as many people as want to be here. Today we're going to talk about what it looks like to make sure we never become the selfish giant. And so as we begin to talk about that, as we begin to make sure that we never let ourselves become the selfish giant, let's do a little bit of recap. This is the fourth week in a sermon series called Paul, a real-life conversion story. And here's what we've said so far. Paul was a big deal in the Jewish world. By every metric that people measured by, Saul was a great man. But here's what he discovered when he met Jesus. None of those things that made him great in people's eyes mattered at all. None of the things that made him important mattered a bit when he found himself before Jesus. And so last week we saw that Saul was sorrowful. He was mourning. He was full of regret because of the way that he had lived his life. And he thought that he was honoring God, but it turns out he was just a selfish giant. So today, as we continue our sermon series talking about the conversion of Paul, or Saul of Tarsus as he's been known up to this point, we're actually going to talk about a man named Ananias. It seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? We're, we're, talking, we're talking very specifically about the conversion of Paul, and we're not even going to talk about him today. We're going to talk about a man named Ananias. Why are we going to do that? There's a very simple reason. Because God uses people in real-life conversion stories. God uses people in real-life conversion stories. We can look all throughout the Bible, and there's a common denominator. Somebody shared with them. Somebody was unselfish with the message of the gospel. God uses people in real life conversion stories. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. There'll be a little bit of recap and then we'll keep moving. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priests and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. 
As he approached Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound from someone's voice, but they didn't see anybody. And Saul picked himself off off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So that's what we've covered so far. That's been our first three weeks in this series. Now, let's pick up our focus for today. Verse 10, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord... Ananias exclaimed, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. The Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. All right, that's a pretty big chunk of Scripture we just read. Let's start at the beginning of our text from today in verse 11. God calls out to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go into a specific part of town. I want you to go to Straight Street. Try saying that over and over again in your sermon. That's, you couldn't have picked a better, you know, like something less Dr. Seussy than that. Like the straight road. How about that? All right. So anyway, I want you to go to Straight Street to Judas's house and I want you to ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias says, okay, Lord, quick question, just out of curiosity. When you say a man from Tarsus named Saul, do you mean Saul of Tarsus? Is that who you're talking about? Because I've, I've heard about this guy, and it's not good. Do you know he's, he's coming here to imprison Christians and take them back to Jerusalem so that they can be tried and executed? Is that the guy, is that the guy you're talking about, Lord? Because, you know, I don't really want to do that. That's who you're talking about. And God says, yeah, that's, that's who I'm talking about, Ananias. So let's, let's stop here. Let's stop here for just a minute. Ananias has every reason on earth not to go to Straight Street, doesn't he? I mean, every reason that a rational, reasonable, thinking person might think of Ananias has that reason to not go to Straight Street and go to Judas' house and introduce himself to the man from Tarsus named Saul. Saul's not going to listen. 
He's going to arrest me. What happens to my family when I die? Is Saul going to arrest them too? Saul's made his choice. He's not following Jesus. I can minister to the people who are already here. I can have a great ministry here in Damascus if I just stay away from straight street. Why why should I care about a guy who obviously doesn't want to hear about Jesus? Saul has every reason on earth not to go. But he has one reason from heaven to go. Church, we get to be Ananias. We get to be Ananias. If we want to make sure that we don't turn into a selfish giant, I propose to you that a pretty good way to do that is to view the world the way Ananias does. We get to be Ananias. You know, you know why Ananias put his life at risk? Because really, that's, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's putting his life at risk. Because if, if Saul hasn't had this conversion experience, there's a 100% chance he gets led back to Jerusalem in chains. Ananias has to trust God that that's not going to happen. But you know why he does that? You know why Ananias goes to straight street and preaches to an enemy of the cross because Ananias doesn't think of himself first. He trusted God first. And I was reminded this past Sunday night that we are striving to do the same thing here. So last Sunday night, we had an informational meeting about the the two-service transition, and one of our elders was talking, Charles Elgin, and, and he reminded me He reminded all of us of the priority that we use when we make decisions, when we think, when we pray. And so here's what he had to say. This is our priority. First, we trust God. Then, we serve others. Then, we consider ourselves. Our first priority is to trust God. Our second priority is to serve others. And last on that list is our own preferences. That's how we think about things. And that's why we've landed on a decision to add a second service. It's not about us. It's not about us at all. In fact, if it were about us, we wouldn't do it. Can I, can I say that again? If this were about us, we wouldn't do it. You know why? Because it's going to be more work. It's going to be a lot more work to have two worship services on Sunday morning. It's going to require more people to serve. It's going to make our days longer. We're going to have to find solutions to problems that don't exist when we just have one service. If this were about us, we wouldn't do it. But this isn't about us. It's about trusting God and serving others. Church, we get to be like Ananias. And that's an exciting privilege. But Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I, I know, I, I'm on, I get, this makes sense to me, right? I've spent all week with my sermon, so I get where I'm going. But maybe, maybe you're going, I, quick question, Tony, why, why would I do something that makes me change my Sunday routine or, or my level of involvement for somebody who doesn't even come to church here? Why, why would I do that? They don't even come to church here. It's a fair question. I've got a really simple answer for you. Because that's what Jesus did for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this is what Paul said. By the way, this is the same Paul 
who went to Damascus with murderous intentions. Here's what he said. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I love that line, while we were still sinners. Jesus didn't wait for us to show an interest in him. Jesus didn't wait for us to clean up our act. Jesus didn't wait on us. He acted for us. He died for us. Here's how he thought. Here was his priority. Jesus trusted God and he served us knowing full well it would cost him his life. So why are we going to serve people who aren't here yet? Why are we going to change our schedules, routines, levels of service, length of Sundays? Why are we going to do that? Because that's the example that Jesus set for us. And it's interesting to me, when Ananias, he asked God why he should go. God, why, why should I go to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for Saul of Tarsus who wants to kill people? Why should I do that, God? And here's what God said. Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul. God said, Saul was the one that was going to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. The message of salvation. The message of salvation. Why are we going to serve people who aren't here yet? Why are we going to change our schedules, routines, levels of involvement, length of Sundays? Because it's a matter of heaven and hell for people who aren't here yet. I want you to think about this with me for just a second. If, if you were on your way into town after church and you saw somebody who, they had a, a burn pile going. They shouldn't have a burn pile going today, right? There's a burn ban in effect. But if they did, uh, if, if they had their burn pile going in, and because there's a burn ban on, it's a little dry outside, and so the fire escapes and it's, it's moving towards their house. And as you get closer, you thought, maybe I'll pull in and just let them know that they need to, put their fire out, but as you get closer, you notice that the fire has actually reached the side of their house, and the flames are starting to go up the side just a little bit. At that point, what sort of action is off limits? Wait, what, what are you not going to do? Right? So normally, and, and I make this promise to all of you who are here today, normally, I'm not going to run into your house unannounced. Right? I'm going to knock on the door wait for you to come. If you don't answer, I'm going to say, oh, they're not home right now. They don't really feel like talking. If your house is on fire, that promise is off the table. I'm going to come in, right? If, that, if your house is on fire, I'm going to do anything I can. I'm going to throw a brick through their window. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. Church, this is a matter of life and death for people who aren't here yet. Our children's ministry is life and death. And all of the people who work in children's ministry can say, yeah, that's exactly right. So I feel like I've died after I leave on Sunday morning when there's 26 kids in the We Worship. That wasn't in my notes. 
Okay. Our worship ministry is life and death. I view preaching as a matter of life and death. Rooted is life and death. Serving people is life and death because people will either go to heaven or hell. And God has called upon us to be Ananias to our community. So what does it mean to be Ananias? Being Ananias means setting aside our preferences for the sake of people we don't know. Setting aside our preferences for the sake of people we don't know. We have to do that. We have to set aside our preferences in serving and our preferences in being served. And here's why this is so important. Because the better we are at setting aside our preferences, the more opportunities we'll have to share the gospel. You know what a selfish giant doesn't do? You know what a selfish giant doesn't do? He doesn't share. So the better we are at setting aside our preferences, the more opportunities we'll have to share. We have to set aside our preferences for the sake of people we don't know. I want you to think about Ananias. His preference would have been to not go to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You know what he did? Here's what he said. He said, Lord, I've heard a lot of people talk about this man and the terrible things that that he's done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon him. His preference would be to stay away from Straight Street. I get that. But Ananias was able to set aside his preferences for a very simple reason. God had called him to do it. And because he was able to set aside his preferences, he was able to share the gospel with Saul of Tarsus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany, and during his ministry, the Nazis rose to power. And Bonhoeffer was adamantly opposed to everything that National Socialism stood for. And he was... He would do anything that he could. He spoke against it regularly. He was even an active saboteur against the cause of national socialism. Eventually, because of that, he found himself interred in a concentration camp. And before his death at the hands of the Nazis, uh, Bonhoeffer said something that has always resonated with me. Here's what he said. He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. I love that quote. It's less about cautiously avoiding sin than it is about courageously and actively doing God's will. Why do I bring this up in this sermon? See, when our goal is simply to avoid sin, we leave a lot of room for preference. When our goal is simply to avoid sin, we leave a lot of room for preference. We can say stuff like, well, I don't want to go to Straight Street, but at least I don't drink. I don't want to minister to Saul. I'm really focusing on my purity right now. I don't really want to serve in kids' ministry, but I do listen to Caleb. I don't want to add a second service because I make it to the first one. And yet, the better we are at setting aside our preferences, the more opportunities we'll have to share the gospel. 
Ananias set aside his preferences and he went to Straight Street. Because of that, he was able to baptize the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. What can we do if we're willing to serve like Ananias? What child's life are you going to make a difference in? Who are you going to greet on Sunday morning when it's their first day at church? Who are you going to sit next to in the second service? Let me put a point on it. Whose real-life conversion story are you going to be a part of? See, being Ananias doesn't always mean sharing your faith. Sometimes it means sharing your time, your talents, or other words that start with T. Right. But the more able we are, <laughs> the more able we are to share our time and our talents, the more likely it is that we'll have the opportunity to share our faith. So look at what happens when Ananias goes. So Ananias went. He found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Church, we want every Sunday to be that Sunday for somebody. Now, I realize that the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus is a little different in some ways than many of ours. Like, I've never baptized anybody and they had scales fall off their eyes, okay? Just full disclosure, I realize that there are differences, but there are similarities. And we want every Sunday to be that Sunday for somebody. We want every Sunday to be the Sunday when somebody realized that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He acted for us. We want every Sunday to be the day when somebody realized that Jesus' dying breath has brought us life. That His death was the punishment for our sin. We want every Sunday to be the day when somebody chooses to be baptized just like Saul did. Because baptism is where the sinner dies and a Christian rises to live a new life completely and eternally forgiven of their sins. We want every Sunday to be that Sunday for somebody. And I have a specific action step. I have something that I'm going to ask you to do for the next seven days, and it's incredibly simple. It's also incredibly important. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. For the next seven days, I want you to pray for people who aren't here yet. Every day, for the next seven days, pray for people who aren't here yet. And here's how I do this. I, I have a, a daily prayer time. Um, and what I do is because we all have this tendency to get busy. And so right now you're in church and, and you're convinced. You're going, yeah, I can do that. For the next seven days, I am going to pray every day. But then Tuesday happens. Right? And, and your furnace goes out, and you don't intend to forget, you just forget. So here's what I do to ensure that I don't forget. I just put it on my calendar, and I get a notification. And when I look at the notification, I go, oh, it's time to pray. So I don't care what time you set it for. Set it for a time that makes sense for you. But for the next seven days, set a calendar or a reminder or an alarm or whatever so that you can pray for people who aren't here yet. 
we're adding a second service and launching a live stream, and there's only one, only one reason. It's not about us. It's not about us at all. Here's the reason. We want more people to hear about how much God loves them. That's going to mean that we all have to be Ananias. We're going to have to be willing to go to straight street. And we're going to start by praying for people who aren't here yet. Because God wants to use you. Ready? God wants to use you in someone's real life conversion story. Because heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Because we have news worth sharing. So pray for the people who aren't here yet. How do we do that? I've got some ideas for you. I've got three ideas to get you started and you add to that list however you want. First of all, pray that they might come and hear about the love of God. Pray that they might come and hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. How are they going to know about the Gospel unless someone tells them? Well, we're up to that challenge. So pray that they might come and hear. Pray that we might be prepared to think of them before ourselves. We might be prepared to think of them before ourselves. And finally, pray that God would show us. Pray that God would show us someone whose real life conversion story we can be a part of. Every conversion story has an Ananias. Sometimes his name's Philip. Sometimes his name's Ananias. Sometimes it's Peter or Paul. Maybe it could be Mike or Tim or Becca or Fatima or Brandon or Brian. Whose conversion story are you going to be a part of? We started, we started with the, the story of the selfish giant. And uh, I'd like to finish the story. I don't like leaving things unresolved. Okay, so if you would just join me with the selfish giant. The giant was puzzled. He could see that it was no longer winter in the rest of the countryside. The weather had turned warm and sunny and new green shoots were springing up everywhere. Why then was it still so bleak in his garden? Something isn't right. The giant said he began to wish for the beautiful garden, for the children who had made it such a happy place, and for the first time, the giant felt lonely. Children continued to stop by the gate after school, wishing they could play in the green garden that they remembered, and one day, a loose stone fell out of the wall, and the hole it left was big enough for the children to call through, and they looked at each other excitedly and entered the secret passage one by one. And the children knew that if the giant found them in his garden, he'd be furious, but they missed the garden too much to stay away. Then, something incredible happened. When their feet touched the ground, the snow began to melt. The grass turned green and the sun began to shine. And the children climbed and they swung from the trees. New leaves appeared on the branches. From inside the castle, the giant heard a bird singing. Amazed, he went to the window. What was happening? The garden was coming back to life. The giant's eyes filled with tears. How selfish I have been. Shaking his head. He was very sorry for what he had done. Now icicles still hung from one tree and a small boy looked up at the tree sadly. He wanted to climb, but he couldn't reach even the lowest branch. And the boy sat down under the tree and began to cry. But suddenly he felt a huge pair of hands gently lift him up 
and set him on a branch. Instantly, the icicles melted and they were replaced with fresh green leaves. The surprised little boy turned to see the giant who had once roared with anger at the children. Now the giant smiled and patted the little boy on the head. The boy flung his arms around the giant's neck and kissed him on the cheek, and the giant's heart melted as quickly as the icicles. He was so sorry he had been so selfish. Now he realized how much he had missed the children. And when the other children saw that they no longer had to fear the giant, they rushed over to him. The giant scooped them up and gave each of them a giant-sized hug. It was wonderful to hear the children laugh again. Does this mean that we can play in your enchanted garden? Asked one child. And the giant now realized that the children brought magic to the garden. Here's what he said. From now on, this is your garden. You can come here and play whenever you like. There are a lot of churches that live like the selfish giants. They say our garden is for us, and if you want a garden, go get a garden. Let me be clear though. This is not our garden. This is not our garden. This is God's, and He wants as many people here as want to be here. This is not ours. Let's pray. God, would you give us the courage and the humility to think of others before ourselves the way that Jesus did? Would you help us to always remember that Christ died for us while we were still sinners and let that message of hope reside in our heart? Father, would you use us to be a part of someone's real-life conversion story? We love you, we thank you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.